0: Good morning, good morning, good morning. We're going to have to play that theme song, good morning, good morning, good morning. I cannot get that, even though I try. I was over there, and I said, i got to say morning. No, I cannot do that. He's going to get it. Yeah, he's going to straighten me out. I'll have to have some lessons. All right, with all that ado, let's take our Bibles and let's turn to the book of Mark. Once again, we've been kind of concentrating our, our study in Mark, using the other parallel passages in the Gospels to... Uh, Add some robustness to it, but Mark chapter 11. We'll find ourselves today in verse 12, and we'll read through verse 21. Mark chapter 11, verse 12. And on the morrow, when they were come from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing a fig tree afar off having leaves, he came, if haply he might find anything thereon. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves. For the time of figs was not yet. And Jesus answered and said unto it, No man eat fruit of thee hereafter forever. His disciples heard it. And they come to Jerusalem, and Jesus went into the temple and began to cast out them that sold, and bought in the temple and overthrew the tables of the money changers and the seats of them that sold doves, and would not suffer that any man should carry any vessel through the temple. And he taught, saying unto them, Is it not written, My house shall be called of all nations the house of prayer? But you have made a den of thieves." The scribes and the chief priests heard it and, and, and sought how they might destroy him, for they feared him, because all the people were astonished at his doctrine. And when even was come, he went out of the city. And in the morning, as they passed by, they saw the fig tree dried up from the roots. And Peter called in remembrance, saith unto him, Master, behold, the fig tree which thou cursest is withered away. May God add a special blessing in the reading of his word. And let us just pause for prayer prior to our study. Father God, we thank you for this day. We thank you for all of the love that you betrayed, bestowed upon us and portrayed through particularly Jesus Christ. We would have no hope. We would not be gathered here today, Father, with any reason other than just some sense of a sounding brass, a tingling symbol, Father, if it had not been for Jesus Christ that bore our sins, died on that cross, that cruel cross, which he chose to give himself for. This week, this Passion Week, which Jesus is in the midst of, this being Tuesday, what a day it is. It will be a monumental day as He is doing battle with the place that you were the most interested in, and that was in this case the temple, the heart of Israel. Father, we are yours for these moments now. We had asked that the Holy Spirit would exclusively teach us, would take us where you want us to be, and Father, that you would change us. We are open and yielding to you. Use the power of the Spirit. Use the Word to do what needs to be done. Not only here in this place, but in your church universally and in this country. Father, we know we need you. We need you more than we've ever needed you. And you know our needs before we even know them. But now, Father, again. We want to lift up your name, we want to glorify it, we want to thank you for what you'll do in advance to us, through your word, by the Spirit. We ask these things in Christ's name, amen. Well last week, uh, at least last week in the sense of you being here, uh, we talked about the crowning or a coronation of Jesus Christ, which ultimately really wasn't one. It was one that Jesus had arranged himself, he sent someone, the two disciples, to this little village in Bethphage and said, you will find a donkey and her foal tied to a post, and when you release it, bring her to me and we will carry on. And we went through that last week. Um, It's very interesting, very strange from this concept. This is in Roman territory. If if Romans would have had a, shall we say, a parade, a coronation, a (coughs) gathering, a triumph, it would have been magnanimous. It would have been over the top. It's something that was to be behold. I'm sure that as the Romans, now they're, they're all in view of this. We're in downtown Jerusalem as this happened. And they would have been watching this from a distance saying, uh, that's the best they got? They got somebody riding on, <laughs> on the foal of an ass and they're, what? Right? And by the end of that day, this is where we actually bring ourselves to this. All of that taking place. The people are in a, roar. They're in a revelry. They're ready to go. In fact, they see Jesus Christ as this one that is powerful enough. They call him the right to say the son of David, which is the Messiahship title. But they want him to do battle with the Romans. If we could get them out of our lives, we would be it. In fact, they see the kingdom coming. They've got kingdom all over. In the they probably had bumper stickers made that night, right? <laughs> we are the champions. Jesus is the Messiah only because he is there to do what they want him to do. And that picture is held by many today, actually, in the church, that God is, a, is, is something, and I'm saying that carefully and not blasphemy, but that's really their, it's not someone they worship, it's something they use. Isn't that true? It's absolutely true. It was the same. In other words, we, could, we can blow light at, at those people in Israel. They're no different than we are. They're no different. We have a nation today that was founded on the principles of God. We've lost our way. Uh, tomorrow. It's the day of independence, that we celebrate the day of independence, which is over 200 years ago. But we're more worried about the freedoms that we can have, apart from any responsibility to a God that has given us everything we have. Uh, God's not nearly, as, he's not nearly as interested in the condition of our checkbooks as he is the condition of our hearts. We find the same thing here, Jesus Christ. Now the next day, I, I want to I get you in this moment. He goes back to Bethany, but we have to read this verse because it tells us exactly what's on Jesus' mind for this next day, which it seems to be, it would be Tuesday. Uh, even though it's, it's Paul Monday, if, if you, we' talked about it all, all last week, but let's go back to Mark chapter 11, verse 11. Jesus entered into Jerusalem. This is at the end, uh, coming in riding on a donkey. And he enters into Jerusalem. And where did he go? Into the temple. When he had looked around about upon all things, and now the eventide was come, and he went out to Bethany with the twelve. That's where he spent the evenings of that Passion Week. We are in the last week of his life physically. He is now entrenched in bringing those final stages before he offers himself up as being the sacrifice for all mankind for sin. Sin—the big deal that they couldn't conquer. He's come into Jerusalem, riding on, and this—I mean, this—everybody's excited. You can feel the fervor. There's hundreds of thousands of people in this city. It's potentially—it could have even been millions. Probably five to six to seven times the level of normal occupancy, shall we say, because of the Passover. They're there for a reason, and now they're just—I mean, it's a massive entourage of people, pilgrims that have come to celebrate the Passover, and now this massive people is really getting surrounded, they're surrounding Jesus as being the king, the son of David that, again, that messianic title, you don't want to miss that they see him for the, they see the right name, but for the wrong purpose, okay, so Jesus is first after getting off, he goes into the temple now the temple, I didn't do my homework fully, I was thinking about, well I was sitting at the organ I didn't complete it, I want to know how big that temple is, it's big and there's several courts, uh, That the court of the Gentiles where a lot of his commerce we'll be talking about that as we go on he would, have, he would have assessed all of it. Didn't do anything that night. Mark tells us that. Matthew just boils right into it and says, he did this. But here we are. He's assessing. What do you think his night was like? He obviously knows what's coming. He knows on four days later, he will be hanging on a cross for the sins of the people of the world. But he's got business to do. He's got things to accomplish. And he steps in to that temple, and I can't imagine, it doesn't say anything that he responds. But he saw everything that was back to the way it was of when he first came in his ministry. I want us to go back. I was going to do it later, but I think this sets it up. Let's go to John chapter 2. This is not the first time that he's done something to the temple, shall we say. John chapter 2, and I, make sure we get our context. Uh, if I was going to ask you at all, say, what was Jesus' first miracle that is recorded for us? It would be turning the water into wine, that wedding at Cana, which we find in John chapter 2. So I I want us to keep that in mind. In fact, uh, we will go to verse 11 of John chapter 2. It's the capsule or the capping of that miracle. In verse 11, chapter 2 of John, are you all there? It says, this beginning of miracles did Jesus in Cana of Galilee. That's turning the water into wine, and manifested forth his glory. And his disciples believed on him. So this is essentially now where we're at in Mark chapter 11. We're turning back the time three years. This is at the beginning of his ministry. Verse 12, John chapter 2. After this, he went down to Capernaum, he and his mother and his brethren, and his disciples, and they continued there not many days. And the Jews' Passover, this would have been the same time frame, was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Jerusalem. And found in the temple those that sold oxen and sheep and doves and changers of money sitting. And when he had made a scourge of small cords, he drove them all out of the temple. And the sheep and the oxen poured out the changers' money and overthrew the tables and said unto them, That sold us, take these things hence, get them out of here. Not my father's house, a house of merchandise. And his disciples remember that it was written, The zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. That's in Psalms chapter 69. Then answered the Jews and said, him, What signs showest thou unto us, seeing that thou doest these things? They're saying, What are you doing? Who are you? Now, that happened three years ago. Now, what do you think Jesus thought? Now, step, step forward again. We just step back in the past to see that Jesus had been here, done some pretty serious things. Now, three years forward, at the very end of his life, he's three days away from hanging on a cross, he steps into the temple and he says, Nothing that night before, and the next day he comes out. He had some things on his mind, didn't he? Now, let's, let's change from where Jesus is because we know. We've read what he's going to do. We've just read that passage in Mark. The people have a whole different level of what's going to happen today, Tuesday, the day after he marches in with what was called a triumphal entry. And I'm saying it's, it's actually literally a false coronation. But Jesus did that for one purpose, two purposes. One, to fulfill Scripture, which is in Zephaniah, Zechariah. I'm sorry. And secondarily, he needed to get on that cross as the Passover lamb. He knows he's going to be there. What's the quickest way to do that? To the scribes, the religious leaders, the Sadducees, all of those? Go ahead and be declared a king by the people. That'll get her done. They want nothing to do with him whatsoever, the religious leaders. By him doing that, literally escalated, accelerated the timetable, because they've been wanting to kill him for a while. This put it on a whole new heavy march to be done. Let us get rid of this guy now. That did it. What do you think the people that were responding by putting coats out in front of him and yielding, him as, yielding to him as the king of Israel, the kingdom is coming, the kingdom is at hand. What do you think they, he was going to do on that next morning? We're going to march right down to the Romans and say, you guys are done for because I'm going to wipe you guys out because I can do that. And we're going to be Israel and you are no longer in charge of us. And that's what, right? You talk about patriotism. They were all over it. It seems almost odd, almost uh, ironic that here we are tomorrow being Freedom Day, if you will, of the United States. This was one that was proposed by the people, the citizenry, under Jesus Christ being this new anointed, appointed king as being the one that's going to get them freedom and break away from Rome. It would have been like their coming July 4th, if you will. (coughs) Talk about having a difference of actions. Jesus comes into town. Oh, wait a minute. There's another part of this we don't want to miss. It says he left Bethany and he's walking into Jerusalem. How far is Bethany from Jerusalem? It is... Oh, we got to get our map out then. Laramie, throw that back on the wall. I thought we knew this, but we don't. We're going to check it out. As Laramie's putting that on the wall. Bethany would have... Now, think of this. How many, how many available uh, rooms do you think there would have been in Jerusalem for the Passover guests? Not very many. <laughs> it would have been like it would have been like this census thing going on in Bethlehem. Remember, when Jesus was inside Mary's womb, there was no place then. There's really no place in Jerusalem. It, it's just a busy place. So as we look at our as we look at our, Paul was nice enough to give me something to point with, right? This Isn't this cool? I'll lose this. Actually, I think there's a couple little grandkids might get a hold of this. So we'll have to lift it high. But at any rate, we know from uh, the last uh, shall we say the last miracle that is recorded with names and places and dates. Uh, you understand what I'm saying, no, not really a date, but in Jericho, that was where blind Bartimaeus was was uh, healed of his blindness, and there was another man spoken of in one of the other Gospels, um, Jericho. From there, he traveled towards Jerusalem. He's on his way to, to, to Jerusalem, but you would come to Bethany, this little, this little burg right here, and there's another town called Bethage. It would also, literally, just the way it's described for us last week, it's across the street, if you will, another little burg, a little village, and from Bethany to Jerusalem is about... Two miles. That's where Jesus is staying. Now, where is he staying? He's staying at a good friend's house. They would have invited him, not wanting him to go anywhere, and that would be the home of Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. Now, that's what happened on the day after. They would have gotten, from, they would have gotten into Bethany on the Saturday, the previous Saturday. And on Sunday, it says in, 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 the, in the Gospels, that literally the crowds had learned about Lazarus' rising from the dead. They wanted to see that. They wanted to see him. And they wanted to see Jesus, the one that was there. And it was recorded that he had arrived in Bethany. Crowds came from Jerusalem to Bethany to see Jesus and Lazarus. That was on Sunday. The next day he went into Jerusalem. Now all of this taking place, he's the new king. Reverberating through Jerusalem in a very crowded place. And I know they thought the next day, this is the day of liberation. This is the day of the beginning of the rest of our lives of freedom for us. And what does Jesus do? He's walking from Bethany, and he's hungry. It says, you know, it's the humanness of that. There's something about that. Uh, Jesus experienced everything that you experience. Pain, hunger, thirst, all of those things. In fact, in Hebrews, it tells us about what a great place to approach the throne of grace because he, our Savior, literally experienced all of the things that you... What, what better place to... And he didn't sin. Even better, right? That would be who I'd want to consult with. That's where I want to drop to my knees. That's where I would want to be engaged is it that with that person? But he's hungry, and he sees from a distance. It says we read it, a fig tree. Now in, in Israel, there's fig trees everywhere. I mean, they're everywhere, literally every. I'm not talking about just groves of them commercially raised. Then there were some of that, obviously. This was they just be growing. It would be like choke cherry trees. I don't know why I said that, because it, wouldn't be, it would be more plentiful than chokecherries. But you know, what I'm, the reason I said that is many people just drive there, oh, there's chokecherries, and they go out and they pick them. They don't ask, I wonder whose those are. It's not like that, is it? Because nobody really cares. It was almost like that fig trees were so common, so ordinary, that it was just commonplace. You just pick a fruit and go on. Now, this is probably March or April, giving the Passover time. It was obvious that they saw, he saw that was, there was leaves, there was foliage, Now, it says in the passage that the fruit was not at hand. So, I I bother me as a youth growing up. Now, wait a minute. Why would Jesus, now this, by the way, is the only negative, the destructive sense. If you want to call it a miracle, you can call it what you want. But it's got to be, there's something here, right? Why would Jesus go up to a tree and so he's hungry? And it would seem he's really, really pumped up emotionally. You can tell because of what happens later. Okay, we'll get to that. So, he wants something to eat. And here's his fig tree. And in March or April, there would still be edible fruit, very mature, but edible. But the time of the real fruit is later, because that's when it really comes on. And a fig actually produces two or three crops. This one would be very early, very immature. But he goes over to it, and that's the part. The full ripened harvest would be later. That's why it says what it says. But at this time, most fig trees, you could go over and dig through. Oh, there, there's a couple. would be smaller, but edible. Okay? And he doesn't find anything. He just finds leaves. He just, like, out of the blue, says, "You will never have figs for anyone," and walks away. It says the disciples heard it. That probably took him aback a little bit because this is the first time and the only time, literally, unless you would count the pigs part of the the demoniac that was uh, that was actually was cast out of those pigs perished. But it was part of. I mean, it was a trade-off. I mean, here's a man that was relieved of demons, right? This is the only, shall we say, single miracle that's destructive. And I read the last two verses of what we read just to show that it happened. The next day, Tuesday to Wednesday morning, they walk by the same tree, and it's withered from the roots up. Now, why would Jesus do that? I mean, is he just ticked off? Is he having a crabby day? There's something behind it, isn't there? There's something behind it. There's something behind it. In fact, let's find ourselves. Let's find another parable. Um, I think, let's go to uh, Luke chapter thirteen. Luke chapter thirteen, and this is another uh, situation that was 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 earlier a parable that he had given. And let's see if I can dig into it. Uh, where is that at? Uh, verse six, Luke chapter thirteen, and verse six. It's almost like this was taught earlier in his in his teaching in the three years, and then this this. This finality, shall we say, which we read in Mark chapter 11. Luke chapter 13, verse 6. He spake also this parable. A certain man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came and sought fruit thereon and found none. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? And then he said unto the dresser or the gardener of his vineyard, Behold, these three years I come seeking fruit on... Now, did you see? That was significant. Three years. Why why three years? Ministry. Aha! Isn't it amazing? Because he started the ministry, and guess what he did three years ago? We just read it in John. I'm leading the witness now. What did he do in John chapter 2? He cl- Yeah, that's true. What did he do after he made the wine? He went into the temple and he cleaned house three years ago. Why did he do that? Why did he just hold that? Don't even answer. This is interesting. This is really, really interesting. There's an analogy here. This fig tree that he has just cursed in Mark chapter 11 is tied to something else. Let's keep going. Uh, I got to get back to my. Why do I wander around so much? Right? If I just stay here, it'd be easier for me, but I can't do that. Then he said on the dresser of his vineyard, verse 7, chapter 13 of, of uh, Luke Behold, these three years I come seeking fruit on this fig tree and find none. Cut it down! Why does it even take up space? And he answering, that's the gardener, said unto him, Lord, let it alone this year also, till I shall dig about it and dung or fertilize it, and if it bear fruit, well. And if not, then cut it down. And that's the end of that parable. It's like, and the point is, it's like it's just, it's, it's, have you ever had those episodes of you're watching something and you get to the end and they just cut it off and say, see you next week. Ah, I hate that. And it's almost like this parable. The disciples are, would you please finish it? I mean, did it cut down or did it not get cut down? I mean, did it die or did it produce fruit? He didn't do that. you know why? Because Mark chapter 11 is a continuation of that. It's not bearing fruit. Who's not bearing fruit? He cleaned the temple, cleansed the temple three years ago at the beginning of his ministry. Guess what? When he walked into that place, the temple that is, the night of his coronation, quotes around it, and he sees it's exactly the same. I'm sorry it was too loud, but I can't help it. He would have just went, I'm sure that's what he did. And all night, that night, in Bethany as he would have been with his friends, there was a stirring. A stirring. You talk about what the people expected. Jesus is going into Jerusalem not to take out the Romans. He's taking out the temple. He's taking out the religious leaders. He's showing where the real tyranny is. It's not the Roman government. That's what with America today. I mean, we've got tyranny, oh, in a lot of places. Politically, it's a mess. A societal reforms should be, it's, a, it's enormous. You know what Jesus did with society reforms? He didn't even talk about them. Because the relationship with God is the number one most important thing in America and in Israel. It's no different. There's a lot of motion here. I, I I just like, whoa. But it's true. If our relationship as a country between man and God is right, the man to man relationship takes care of itself. That was Jesus' whole message. That's why he's going to start where it needs to be started. We're not going to still go down to the Roman fortress. We're going to go to the temple because that's all messed up. That's where the corruption is. That's where it's totally messed up. I got to tone this back a little bit, man. This is. You know what though? That's what Jesus felt that day. And that fig tree. Would actually be could be a passage, or a, a name for a message. This just leaves. There's no fruit. There's just fruit. There's no fruit. It's just leaves. Isn't that what the temple was? Isn't that what the religious leaders had been? Uh, isn't that right? It's exactly right. In fact, we're gonna do a historic, we're gonna go do in a narrative, if you will, of the history of this temple. This temple right here where, where he stepped into. And I again I tell you what, anybody that tells me that Jesus is a wimp someone that tells me Jesus is a nothing, I'm going to tell you something. I I apologize for not finding the scale of this temple. It's huge. It's absolutely huge. In fact, this one right now that we're looking at would be called Herod's Temple. And Herod had started on this project in 20 B.C. He actually did not conclude it until 64 A.D. So this is why when Jesus stepped in and he said, this temple I will destroy and raise up in three days, that's why immediately they were mad. They hadn't even finished building it, literally. So for six, uh, for 84 years, this temple, this third one, if you will, we'll go back and work on our history, is under construction. It's monstrous. It's massive. It's Herod's temple. No, Herod's temple, which is not a godly man in any way, shape, or form, but he knew he could control the people through the temple. Isn't that exactly right? If the temple is corrupt, the leaders are corrupt. The leaders are corrupt, the people are corrupt. If the people are corrupt, the nation's corrupt. Did I could have plugged America in there, couldn't have I? If the church is wrong, you, do you see what I'm saying? It's all about the God-man relationship. And here's Jesus, and he takes them all. He just goes in and cleans out. I, now, think of the size and scope of this. It's, I told you last week, I think it was, that in A.D. 40, one of the... Uh, uh, um, Jewish historians recorded there was 260,000 lambs that were sacrificed on that Passover day. Ten years later, how many visitors were in this town? Because it's thought many times that a lamb would be sufficient for a family or even a surrounding group that didn't have of probably ten. So you're talking two million to two two and a half million people. This is a big deal. The outer court, the court of the Gentiles, which was a place that Gentiles, anyone from any nation, we'll talk about that as well. There's something that God did at the very essence, the very beginning of his whole temple was the thing. It wasn't just for the Jews. For instance, if you were a Gentile, where would you go to worship in the world? Where would you go? Where would you go? Exactly. There is no place. It would be only what you could hear. I mean, we talked about, it was interesting, the one, the one that healed Biden Bartimaeus, and Bartimaeus in Jericho, his name was Jesus. His ancestor was a woman called Rahab. When Jericho was conquered, walked around that city, all of that, she knew something was different about those Israelites, there was something there, there was something that she knew was different. If you were a Gentile, you would have to look to God working with the Israelites, any place in the world, that, that's where God was working. And actually, if I forget to do this, I think it's in uh, First Chronicles chapter 3, but Solomon is literally talking about building this temple, and God is giving him instructions at the end of it. It said, it's not only the court is for you, uh, the temple is for you, it's for all the nations to see what God is doing in your country. So this outer court, coming back to the, to the context, the outer court, the court of the Gentiles was a massive, massive place, would hold tens of thousands of people. In fact, just to give you an idea of how commercialized it had come, come back to, uh, let's go back to Mark for a moment. This just popped in my mind. I want to make sure that we see this. Mark chapter 11. And uh, I think it was 11. Where are we at? Oh, verse 16. Uh, chapter, chapter 11 of Mark and verse 16. Says, and would not suffer or allow that any man should carry any vessel through the temple. Now, think of the commercialization. You say, what does that mean? Well, actually, there was an east gate that was part of opening into the outer court of the Gentiles, and there was another gate out of there, and believe this or not, in the temple of God, which Matthew says it that way, it's, he says, Jesus says, the temple of God, this is what it should be, this is what it's supposed to be. Literally, there would be commerce coming through into the temple and back out, just going through commercial means, it's like a highway, through the temple. Do you see why Jesus is ticked off? He is ticked off, by the way. He's angry, righteously. We struggle with that a little bit. When we get angry, what's the reason? A lot of times I'm angry for really dumb things. It has nothing to do with righteousness, right? Correct? We're like that, aren't we? We can smile. But Jesus was angry today, this day, as he was angry three years ago, in the same place for the same reason. And it had come back. I mean, how depressing would have that been? He cleaned it out once, changed it up, said, guys, get this right. This is what it's about. Right? Ah, here we are. Let's talk about the temple. Where's the temple at? Well, it's in Jerusalem. That's right. Let's go back before Jerusalem. Let's go way back. Let's go way, way, way back. What could we use as a beginning point? This place geographically where this temple right now is at. Where would we go? Where would we start? This may surprise you, may not. We'll have to start in Genesis chapter 22. So let's go back to Genesis 22, briefly, not to over, it's one of my favorite places to be, obviously, you know that, it's where Abraham responded with obedience that is above and beyond anything that I possibly can even comprehend at times, but he did because his faith was truly, completely, in the words of what God had told him that he would have descend as the sand of the sea. So let's just dive in, There's only, we're, we're on a mission, we're on this branch to not go chase rabbits down every trail, but I want you to see the position geographically. Genesis chapter 22 verse 1, it came to pass after these things that God did tempt or test Abraham, would be a better word, and said unto him, Abraham, and he said, behold, here I am. And he said, take now thy son, thine only son Isaac, whom thou lovest, and get thee into the land of Moriah. And offer him there for a burnt offering upon one of the mountains which I will tell thee of. Okay? That's, his, that's all I want to do for right now. I'm, it's amazing because I can't hardly go to Genesis 22 and not just have fun there. Because it's so beautiful to see that allegiance that Moses, Moses, Abraham has for his God. But I'm going to today. I want to keep going. In fact, about 900 years later from that point, we'll have to turn to 1 Chronicles chapter 21. Turn to 1 Chronicles chapter 21 and we find King David. King David really messed up. He had one of those, oh, I can't believe I did that moments, which he had a few of in his life, right? And if you read, I'm not going to have, I mean, this is going to be your own homework, but David made a census, and in fact, in verse, uh, verse 1 of chapter 21, I'll just set you up, I'm not going to spend any time here, but it said, Satan stood up against Israel and provoked David to number Israel. David wants to know how many people we have in Israel. He wants to know everything about his people. He wants to know how many soldiers there are, he wants to know all this, and he sinned because who are you really depending upon? It comes down to that. Is it, is it me, God, or is it your stuff? That's why God doesn't care about your checkbook. He really doesn't care about your checkbook. He's bigger than that checkbook. It's correct. How many people vote in an election based upon their economic situation? Very large percentage. Very large percentage. If your relationship with God is right, now I'm not saying you should want, you know, you don't want to just not take care of your check. Don't misread what I'm saying. We need to be good stewards. But God is bigger than any checkbook. He wants a cattle on a thousand hills. There's nothing that he can't produce. I mean, if, if, you can, if you can go to a Virgin Mary at probably 15, 16 years, 16 years of age, and he says, you will have a child. She's struggling. She should be struggling. This is crazy. But with God, there's nothing that's impossible. There's nothing in your life today, as you're sitting here, or wherever you might be hearing my voice, there's nothing, nothing, nothing that God cannot handle. Isn't that good to know? That's the God I want to be. That's like Abram, when he raised his knife to kill his only son, He was so entrenched in allegiance to a God that he trusted, there was nothing he knew that God could break his word. I am with you today and forever. That doesn't change, regardless. Boy, I'm just pumped up today. I don't know what this is about, but here we go. So, okay, so that's uh, 1 Chronicles chapter 21. I took you there. And let's go all the way to verse 18. Now, David has really messed up. And and you have to read the whole chapter to get it on, honestly. But verse 18, I want to dive in there. Chapter 21 of 1 Chronicles. Then the angel of the Lord commanded Gad to say to David that David should go up and set up an altar unto the Lord in the threshing floor of Ornan, the Jebusite. Now, let's stop for a moment. Uh, What do you know about a Jebusite? Where would that be at? Where was was that site at? Yes, correct. So now it's interesting. Now, we haven't named a place yet. But Ornan the Jebusite, he was supposed to go up. That's interesting again, going up to Jerusalem in this case. Let's keep going. So David went up, verse 19, at saying of God, which he spake unto the name of the Lord. And Ornan turned back and saw the angel, and his four sons with him hid themselves. But Ornan was threshing wheat. As David came to Ornan, Ornan looked and saw David and went out of the threshing floor and bowed himself to David with his face to the ground. Why? Well, he knew David was the king. Then David said, Ornan, grant me the place of this threshing floor that I may build an altar therein. "'Unto the Lord thou shalt grant it me for the full price, "'that the plague may be stayed from me.'" And there's people dying because of David's census. Ornan said unto David, "'Take it to thee, let my lord the king do that which is good in thine eyes. Let, "'Give him the oxen also for burnt offerings and threshing.'" He, he's saying, just take it. And David, verse 24, said, "'No, no, no, I want to buy it from you for the full price. "'I will not take that which is, ta- is fine for the Lord, "'nor the burnt offerings without cost.'" So David gave to Ornan for the place 600 shekels of gold by weight. And David built there an altar unto the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings and called upon the Lord. And he answered him from heaven by fire upon the altar of the burnt offering. And the Lord commanded the angel, and he put up his sword against the sheath thereof. And at that time, when David saw that the Lord had answered him, the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite, then he sacrificed there. For the tabernacle of the Lord, which Moses made in the wilderness, and the altar of the burnt offering were at that season in the high place of Gibeon. But David could not go before it to inquire of God, for he was afraid because of the sword of the angel of the Lord. Now, you know from other, other circumstances that literally David was not allowed to build a temple, Correct. He assembled the stuff. And God said, because you are a man of blood, a man of war, your son, a man named Solomon, will really build that temple for me. Now let's go to 2 Chronicles chapter 3. Let's go there for a moment. 2 Chronicles chapter 3. This is about 20 years later. 2 Chronicles chapter 3. And verse 1, I believe. 2 Chronicles chapter 3. Here we go. Now this is going to start, things are going to start tying together right here. 2 Chronicles chapter 3 verse 1. Then Solomon, David's son, began to build the house of the Lord at Jerusalem in Mount Moriah. Moriah, where the Lord appeared unto David his father in the place that David had prepared in the threshing floor of Ornan and the Jebusite. Just in case you didn't get all that, he lines it out again. So think of this. The temple that Solomon built was right at Jerusalem. It was the place that originally was where God asked Abram to sacrifice his son on Mount Moriah. And if that wasn't one of the most worshipful moments I know of, that first sacrifice that was there was a ram that was caught in a thicket after God had said, now I know that your heart is with me. And he didn't. It wasn't God knowing it. He knew it all the time. But he provided. Remember that? Oh, I love that line. Uh, what, Dad, what are we going to say? I can't He's stop. I can't stop talking about this. <laughs> Poor little Isaac, right? Where's the, where's the sacrifice? And, Abraham has a perfect answer. When you don't have any answers, the answer is, the Lord will provide. Isn't that good? That's exactly right. And guess what? He's, he's thinking, oh, oh, that was close, right? And all of a sudden, off his, I think it was to his right, I don't know. There's a, there's a ram stuck in a thicket. And there's, there it is. He provided a ram. That was the first sacrifice at this temple site that literally Jesus has walked into to cleanse Isn't that amazing? Now it would be built on Mount Moriah. The very highest point of that would have been, I've talked about the court of the Gentiles. The next one up would be the court of the women. And the next court, go through another gate, would be the court of the Israelites. And the next court was the court of the priests. And the next final place was the Holy of Holies at the very top of Mount Moriah. That's where only the priests could go one day out of the year to sacrifice for the people with atonement that one day. And if you think about this, four days from this day, actually counting Tuesday, coming back to the, to the, to the, uh, the uh, week, Passion Week, literally it's a Tuesday and on Friday, the dismantling of that temple would begin. And it started on the top of that mountain. That veil was ripped from top to bottom when Jesus Christ died and said, it is finished. It was no longer necessary for a priest. You were directly to God because of what Jesus accomplished. 40 years later, the Romans demolished the entire temple. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's go back to our historical aspects of this temple. So let's just review really quickly. So this temple site, Mount Moriah, is literally where Abram would have I have to say, worshiped at a high level of degree, giving God everything that He was. There was nothing yielding. There was nothing to yield at that point. His son that He loved, it speaks of it in the scriptures. There's nothing He wouldn't give for God. That was was the original. You talk about worship. That's worship. That's what this is all about, is worship. And then, 900 years later, David, the way he wards off this census plague is literally to buy that place in full for 600 pieces of silver. It's about 15 pounds for you that are calculating that. How many of you have 15 pounds of gold? How many want 15 pounds of gold? Not really. What would you do with it, right? And then, and then, Solomon builds a temple on that site. And then it's demolished completely. Completely wiped out 300 years later. Who did that? The Babylonians. Why did they destroy it? Because God told them to. Why did God tell them to destroy this temple that Solomon had built up and it was actually designed for, a, shall we say, a key piece for all of the nations to come to? Don't miss it. They were, they were worshiping idols. There was apostasy. And God said, enough. In fact, you can go, we can track it through Deuteronomy. You can see in Deuteronomy chapter 28, this is the blessings and this is blessings and you don't do this and there's curses and curses. Their whole temple was wiped out. Their whole life was wiped out. It's gone. They were drug off. But 70 years later, in captivity, because that's exactly what God predicted. It's exactly in Daniel. You can find it exactly there. <sighs> Under Zerubbabel, they go back and they build a modest temple. This is the second temple. Okay? And you find it was completed uh, in Ezra chapter 6, verse 15. And it goes on. But now they... Have never been, again, idol worship was not a part of Israel's downfall, but the level of false religion, hypocrisy, apost- I would just say apostasy overall, has, has just plagued them. And, and, and God talks about this through the minor prophets. Oh, right? And then that second temple literally was desecrated by a man called Antiochus Epiphanes. He put up in the temple, if you can imagine this, a statue of Jupiter. And then the ultimate to a Jew would be to slaughter a pig on the altar. Oh, my goodness, right? Three years later, it was just a kind of a, like a, I would call a modest revival. I would, A modest revival in America today would be awesome. I'd go, I'd go be a minimal revival in America, right? But it was a mo- under, under Judas Maccabees. There was a a bit of a sort of a get it right kind of a moment, and then it just turned right around and went off. Those 400 years from Malachi to the coming of Jesus Christ, those silent years, oof, not much good happened then. God wasn't even talking to them. There was no communication through his prophets. They wouldn't listen, right? What would happen? I'm wondering, what literally if Jesus Christ himself would arrive and just... You see, he came in Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, he says he came came at the perfect time, the fullness of time. He came. Because I think if Jesus came today, we'd miss him. Now we're not gonna miss him the next time he comes, because he's not coming as a baby. He's coming in full-scale judgment and kingship. There's no one will miss him. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. That's how he's coming next time. That's Jesus. Back to the temple. So it's desecrated beyond belief. And then there was this man, Herod. I think it was a control thing. He said, you know what? The temple is what they're all about. So I'm going to build them a temple. And he began. It was the third temple, if you will. He added on to this second temple wasn't destroyed, but it was it was destroyed. You understand what I'm saying? And he's building on it. And that's the one that Jesus is into. That's the that's the third one. In 70 AD, 40 years from this point of time, when Jesus is walking through and cleansing this temple, the Romans destroy it completely. Completely wipe it out. Six years after Herod completes it, it's gone. All the genealogy records are gone. I think that's really remarkable. The Jews want to have a temple. They want to have the right people as Levites to serve as priests. There is no genealogy because it was destroyed in the fire. And then like, wake up! What do you think God's trying to say? 70 A.D., it's wiped out. Now, we know from Daniel chapter 9, verse 27, they will have another temple. Sometime during the tribulation period, we will have another desecration by the full-blown Antichrist. Now, it's interesting. Those of you that in your, your study for the present day in which we find Israel is combining and compiling a whole list of materials, much like David had done for his son Solomon for the temple that they want built in Israel. There will be one built. It will be the fourth one. And it will be desecrated literally in a very, very short time by that Antichrist. He will probably prepare a way for them to build it. In fact, even probably announce his involvement in it. And then at the end of the tribulation. Part of the peace treaty. Part of the peace treaty. Yeah, and you know what? Today, most people in America and I'm saying most in a broad term, would give anything to just have peace. They'll give anything away. They'll give their freedom away for anything. You see it. That is the, that is the atmosphere. That's the environment that Antichrist must have to be in power. We are right there on the cusp of accepting the ultimate in Antichrist as a world population. Every country all over the world, you read the same things. They don't see the same thing that Israel did not see. Sin, the heart, is the problem. Jesus isn't going to conquer the Romans. He's going to conquer a more formidable enemy called the heart, the wicked human sinful heart. That's the enemy. That's where he's going to be a warrior. Isn't that true? Now, there is there is a fifth temple, spoken of Ezekiel chapter 43. That's the one that will, that will be during the millennial reign. And it will be full of glory that's where Jesus Christ will rule and reign from. That's coming. But the one that Jesus is involved in is number three, right here and before him. And I'm telling you what, it would have taken a man to clean this place up. What would be going on in this day during a Passover? Business, business, business. Money, money, money. Oh, money at a max. In fact, that outer court of the Gentiles, you know how much the Jews cared about the Gentiles? But zero. The Gentile, the court of the Gentiles is actually God's way of involving or in, in bringing the outside world into experiencing what the Jews were, who they were worshiping. But now it had become just a place of business. Now, let's say that you, let's, Paul, let's say you journeyed from, uh, you were up in Galilee somewhere. It's a long ways away. And you've been preparing a lamb for the Passover for your family. And your family, you make this, this little trip and you go, you're, you're, you're coming from Galilee. Let's just say you were at, uh, well, let's just say Cana. You were at Cana, and you're traveling with family. And, of course, you wouldn't go through Samaria. No, you wouldn't do that because that would, would pollute you. So you come on the west side, on, the east, uh, yeah, on, the, on the, uh, the east side. You come through Perea, and you may have even run into Jesus. It's hard to say. This massive people are just gathering, right? And they're following this, this guy from Galilee. You don't even know. He's just this Jesus guy. But you brought your lamb, traveled, you know, traveled the whole distance, prepared, and you come into the temple, and there's a priest there right at the door, and he says, let me see the lamb, Mr. Kramer. I'm sorry, this lamb is not good enough. It has a blemish. Oh my goodness, what are you going to do? You're going to go back home? No, no, they've got one for you. <laughs> <laughs> now, what you're going to do, though, because you're not going to take the little lamby home... You're going to trade your lammy in. So, you know, you sell the bill. Yeah. <laughs> but they've got one. And you know what it would normally cost? According to historical records, it's 10 times the amount of its value. So your lamb probably didn't bring hardly anything. It was a trade-in. And they put it, you know, back to be recirculated to the next person that needs one. A little bit of whiteout. There's you? a little, yeah, yeah. Your lammy wasn't tagged, right? Yeah. <laughs> Ten times. Even doves. It spoke of doves, doves in Mark chapter 11. Uh, those people that were so poor, they wouldn't be able to afford a lamb. A dove <coughs> was another way of a sacrifice. I mean, in fact, think, think of Joseph and Mary. Their buck wasn't much to talk about either, apparently. Because when they made the, the sufficient sacrifices for Jesus, it was a dove. Well, get this. A dove was worth about five cents. Unless you went and you didn't have one. At the temple, they had them for sale. Are you ready? Four bucks. That is, you talk about highway robbery. And it was like that in every aspect. Every aspect of this temple degradation. Sounds like today. Money, 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 money. Whew. Do you see why Jesus was upset? Oh, there was praying going on. Remember we read that. That's actually out of uh, Isaiah, I believe. That my house is a house of prayer. Oh, there was praying. P-R-E-Y-I-N-G. And he wanted a -A P-R-A-Y-I-N-G. Just think of how different it was. What if you would have come in, uh, even thinking, I'm using Paul again as an example. He and his family had come. Why would you go to the temple during Passover? What would be be some of the essence of that environment? It would be very solemn, wouldn't it? I mean, we're commemorating something that happened many thousands of years ago. I say many hundreds of years ago would be a better way to put it. But it was when we were delivered, we being the Israelites, from the the tyranny of that Egyptian pharaoh. And to know that that blood on that post, as the angel of death passed over, allowed us to be saved. That's what this is about. That's what Passover is. And to hear this, you couldn't have heard yourself think in this place. You can just get it. It's just, it's just wildly noisy and craziness because of the praying, E-Y. Think of Hannah. Do you remember Hannah? If I say the word Hannah, you remember her? She's in 1 Samuel. How would have this place been for Hannah to come and to have that reflective, kind of a solemn kind of talk with God about, God, if you would give me a son, I would give him back to you. You couldn't even have that conversation. You couldn't even have that. Right? See, it's not at all what we talked about. This is not what Jesus, this is not what God talked about. This is not worship. This is ripping people off. It's a business. I don't know how he did it by himself. I I just, you don't see anybody helping him. I mean, did he just tell them to leave? But you can tell his action, there's action. He's throwing money tables over and he's telling them to get this stuff out and he's chasing animals away. (sighs) Yeah, in John chapter 2, it says he made a whip. The first time we know he did, and I bet just knowing him, he made another one. He probably brought one with him, right? (laughs) Because the night before, I just can't imagine the emotions that must have went through our Savior, that holy, righteous God, the Son of Man, all God, all man, as he prayed, as he prepared for what was coming the next day, to really do war on the thing that was really the enemy. My goodness. What a deal. What a monumental day for him to spearhead exactly where the problem was. There's really something that, to me, I, I don't know, I, you just read, sometimes you just read the Bible and there's just you know what I mean, you can read it and you can read it and you read it and then it's like, oh, I never saw that before. There's a lot of those aha moments, aren't there? Well, I think, I gotta, I think we have to go back to Matthew for a moment. Let me find my glasses. I think it's in Matthew and let's go to like chapter 21. Matthew 21, I believe. <clears throat> and let's, let's, uh, let's read the same event from Matthew's perspective. Chapter 21 of Matthew, verse 12. Jesus went into the temple of God. Now, he, is, he says temple of God as it should be. This is this is really why the temple is there, because it is his temple. He cast out all of them that sold and bought in the temple, and overthrew the tables of the money changers, and the seats of them that sold doves. Now how many of those? It says all of them. And he said unto them, It is written, My house shall be at... Shall be called the house of prayer, and you have made it a den of thieves. There's actually two passages. Isaiah, you might write these in your notes, you might check it out, it's exactly right. These are things that are fresh in Jesus' mind. Isaiah chapter 56, verse 7, talks about the fact of my house shall be called the house of prayer. Uh, Jeremiah chapter 7 talks about you have made it a den of thieves think of that for a moment just think of that we just cruise over those words but this is the temple of God that he's entering and they literally have treated it and it's like a den a hiding place for thieves what? how can this be? Uh. And then and then, just out of the blue, I mean, what do you think? Do you think there's some chaos going on in this place? He just clears the place out. You can feel his righteous anger. You can feel the, the, the sense of, this has to be changed. This is God's house. This is God's place. This is holy. This is righteous. This is where we worship. We don't pray on people. But there wasn't everybody that left. You can see, you can see those people just scurrying away, right? It's like little cockroaches scurrying away. But verse 14 is so refreshing. Watch this. Verse 14, same chapter, chapter 21 of Matthew. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. That verse is so sweet. I don't know how to say it. How could you, how, you know what? The compassion of Jesus brought miracles. We've, we've been noting that through the whole travel we've had through Mark. His compassion is overwhelming. Now how much attention, be careful, how much attention do you think those people were not there? That they just came in afterwards? No, they would have been where people were at. They would have been where all of these travelers and all of this hubbub and all of this commerce and all of this economy and all of this check stuff and cash. And, because they're hoping to just have a little bit of a handout. How much attention did they get? In the house of worship. In the house of prayer, P-R-A-Y. None. They didn't care about them. What is God's house of worship for? What is this temple? To care for those in that nature. It's like everybody else is gone and he's just like, oh, come here. Oh, you're lame? Walk. You're blind. You're healed. It was just like that. I mean, I'm getting a sense, a lot of people, the same position, one of judgment to get rid of that stuff that's literally just de- de- desecrating the temple, if you will, and then at the, in, in just the next moment, healing those that needed healing. Isn't that what the church is for? Isn't that why Jesus died? And it even gets better. You know what happened the day before? The same the adults... We're crying Hosanna, which means save now, right? And we're not talking about spiritually, they were talking about physically. Save us now. And there have been thousands of people claiming Hosanna to the son of David. Watch verse 15. When the chief priests and scribes saw now, this is this this is crazy. When the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things that he did. Mark that. Saw the wonderful things he did. He's just healing people. And watch. And the children crying in the temple and saying, Hosanna to the son of David. So now we've got, and the word is children are young lads. They're literally in the temple saying to this Jesus that just watch him clear the place, watching him uh, heal lame and, and, and blind and sick people. They are saying, these children, Hosanna To the son of David. They, as a child, saw who this really was. Now, they would have heard their parents possibly say it the day before. But where are the parents? I don't know. I know the children. Have you ever seen a child atheist? No. They're not born that way. There's there's that, there's that box, if you will, that's within them that God made them. And there's room in that box for God. You can take a two-year-old and you can describe a God that you can't see, a God that created everything, a God that is magnanimous in every way, shape, and form from a creation standpoint, and you know what? That two-year-old can get it, can he? They can. Tell them there's no God because this has all just happened. That's crazy, correct? You have to learn that. Here's these. Here's these probably anywhere, I would say even five and six years old. We can't know exactly what the age group of this is described as children, but they're literally crying out, Hosanna to the Son of David for the right things. He's, they're not fighting the Romans. He's literally healing people that are sick. Isn't that fantastic? Now, here it gets really sick. This is where it's really bad. Let's watch how the scribes and Pharisees saw wonderful things, how it affected them. Shouldn't this turn, isn't this a sign? Isn't this something they've been looking for? Watch. Same verse. Let's read it again. And when the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying in the temple and saying, Hosanna to the son of David, they were sore displeased. (laughs) They're mad. And said unto him, Hearest thou what these say and these children? And Jesus saith unto them, Yes, have you never read out of the mouth of babes and sucklings thou hast perfected praise? And he left them and went out of the city into Bethany, and he lodged there. Now I I want you to see that this was a full day event. It says he left Bethany in the morning. He was hungry. Probably went without breakfast. That would not be a rare for Jesus. What would he have been doing while everyone was having breakfast? Praying, more than likely. And that's an A-Y. He's praying. Early in the morning he leaves. He's looking for something to eat. And we're not told that he ever did find something because he knew it would be a busy day. Can you imagine how much energy was required for that man, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Son of David, as we described? And it's, it's time to go home when he's done. All day long he's cleansed the temple. And heal people and minister to people. What a day. That is a monumental day. A monumental day. Gave him himself, but that's just the precursor. That is just what's coming. Because ultimately, in three days from now, he would be hanging on that cross. They would have raised their level of disgust to a level of where they wanted him killed. Hard to figure out, isn't it? Or is it? Or is it? You see, the Romans weren't the enemies of the, of the, uh, the religious leaders. The Romans, or any political party, whatever you, whatever you see as tyranny today in America, and there's plenty of problems. Don't, don't, don't misread me here. Uh, I, I was actually read with interest. There was a, a man, uh, forgotten his name now. He just uh, celebrated his 100th birthday. He served in World War II. And he was given a Medal of Honor. I can't remember which one. There was one that died this week. It was the last remaining. Maybe some of us who've read this, help me out here. But, but anyway, that, the man that passed away. But this one is, just had his 100th birthday. And he said something I thought was very unique. It's very true. And at 100 years of age, for him to say, the nation that I fought for, the nation that I feel good about fighting for, is not the same nation it was. Now, he went to lay at the fact that we need more patriotism, okay? That wouldn't be what Jesus would have said. Now, I'm not disagreeing with with this individual. I'm not disagreeing with that. But Jesus went to the root. You see what I'm saying? Just like that tree that didn't have any fruit, it said, we read it in Mark chapter 11, it literally withered from the root up. That's the problem with America. It's not patriotism. It's our relationship with God, You see, good Christians make good citizens. Now, do I want you to be a patriot? Of course I do. I feel feel strongly about the flag that I will pay attention to and that I will yield to. It is my nation. I was born and bred here. This nation was founded on the principles of God. But it's not the most important thing. What is the most important thing is if I worship God. And when we as a nation, individual, worship God, The rest of the stuff takes care of itself. Like I was thinking, you go back to the beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and earth. That's where it starts. If you get that right, if you get that verse right, everything else flows (coughs) together. Because then you've got a God, one that you worship, one that you adhere to, one that you totally bow down and have reverence to. Everything else takes care of itself. But we've got about 330 million people in the country and a large degree of them are worshipers. Oh, yes, don't mark, don't mark. We were in True Seekers the other night, and we were dealing with someone asked, this is a question, we, nobody read their books. Okay, imagine that. So rather than make a point of that, I said, okay, let's just have a question. Somebody just throw a question. Let's deal with a question. You know how that is. Nobody really, you know, it takes a while, right? You got to kind of warm up. So we ate some food, and we kind of, well, okay, guys, we, gotta, we got some time. What, what kind of question do you have? And one of, one of the kids said, what is paganism? I huh. said, so let's deal with it. Let's get on it, right? Let's go for it. You know, ultimately, our, our nation is a pagan. We're a paganistic country today. And you know what pagans are? Why don't you, if you want to look that up and see what a definition for pagan, you can't even really figure it out. They say it's hard to describe. Oh, it's actually the results are very easy. It's self-worship. That's what paganism is. It's anything other than the mainstream religions. That's what it'll tell you in a definition. But literally, we as a nation have become paganistic because we worship ourselves. We do. We absolutely do. From abortion to you name it, all of these social reform, all these social challenges literally comes down to the fact that we worship ourselves. That's the enemy that Jesus was fighting. That's the enemy that he needed to get right to the bottom of. We do too today. It's the same deal. We need the same Jesus. We need the same reforms in the sense of worship God. Worship the real God. That's what we need. just seems ironic. Here we are. Probably the most infamous day in all of Israel's history was this day, Tuesday, of the Passover week where Jesus entered in as the king and took on the temple. Not the Romans. The temple. Judgment must start at the church. Judgment must start. In fact, Peter said that. That's Peter's words. He must have thought about this as he thought about the analogy of that fig tree, which really was a picture of Israel. That was a picture of Israel. No fruit. By your fruit, you shall know them. Where did that come? That was in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said that. By your fruit, by their fruit, you you shall know them. In the temple, there's No fruit. Scoundrels, right? So what do we do about it? It's quiet in here. The two things that Jesus pointed out, which are still very, very relevant for us today. He said the temple was to be a house of prayer. When there's praying people, there's worshiping people. And when we as a church, just like, I can't remember if I wrote that down. I, um, I, I was thinking what Solomon was given direction. Um, Let me see if I can find it. I thought I did, but maybe I didn't. It doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. Where did I have? Let's go to Philippians 3.3, though. I just happened to see that was one of, in one of my notes. Philippians 3.3. Where did I put that? Oh, yeah. We're going we're gonna to find it. We're going to find it. Let's go to Philippians 3.3, though, first. And uh, let's take a look. This is Paul's words. Okay. Philippians 3.3. You're all there waiting for me. Sorry. For we are the circumcision which worship God in the spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. That verse encapsulates what following Christ and following God is right there. Worshiping God with no confidence in the flesh. Now let's go back to First Kings, First Kings chapter 8. First Kings chapter 8. We'll be real brief here. You say, you've never been brief. Okay, well, uh, we'll try. How's that? First Kings chapter eight. Let's begin at verse 29. First Kings chapter eight, verse 29. It says that thine eyes, this, this is to Solomon, that thine eyes may be opened toward this house, He's just built the temple, night and day, even toward the place which thou hast said, My name shall be there, that thou mayest hearken unto the prayer which thy servant shall make toward this place." And he goes on for those next verses and talks about how you know the heavens could all of these things that are surrounding about worship. But now look all the way down to verse 41. Verse 41, same chapter, chapter 8, 1 Kings. Moreover, concerning a stranger that is not of thy people Israel, but cometh out of a far country for thy name's sake, for they shall hear of thy great name, and of thy strong hand, and of thy stretched out arm, when he shall come and pray toward this house. Did you see what that said? That court of the Gentiles, that outer part of was made for people coming from afar off because they had heard of and had seen what had happened in the nation of Israel. That is the same for us in America people or any place in the world. That people from afar off, those that are outside of Jesus Christ should come and see the compassion, the love that God has for them through the church. That's how nations are revived. That's how reform takes place. Is that not true? If there was ever a day, it's today, for us to pray more, to worship more, and literally the attraction that causes from those that are without the church, you can't you, you can't get away from it. I, I've spoke of a couple of uh, prayer requests that came uh, to me. There's people I work with, people I do business with. The one called me on the way to the hospital. Now, he didn't ask for prayer, but we know each other well enough to know that he knew I would offer prayer. You see, that's cool, isn't it? That's what, this, that's, that's what we need. And it all comes from where? From worshiping God. Praying my house of prayer. You couldn't even heard somebody pray in that place. Jesus cleared it out. That's what made him mad. We have much to be thankful for. I'm glad I... I'm glad I live in America. Aren't you? I don't know where else I'd want to live. Never lived anywhere else. I've traveled. I've been in other places. It was always good to come home. I can still come to this church. I can still go to another church. It's not like it was. But we still have freedom. We should be thankful for that. And freedom is not free. We need to speak up. We need to stand firm. When we have men that want to pretend to be women, we don't pretend with them. It's all wrong. In fact, let's go to, let's go to Isaiah chapter five verse 20. This is, this is where this nation and I probably share with you more than I should, but no, not really, because this is very important. Isaiah chapter five verse 20. Listen to this. This, this, is, this is literally something that's spoken of many, 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 many years ago, and it's so true. Isaiah chapter five verse 20. "Woe unto them that call evil good." And good, evil, and it put darkness for light, and light for darkness, and put bitter for sweet, and sweet for bitter. Woe unto them that are wise in their own eyes! Prudent, isn't that exactly what's going on? It's all upside down. But God is God. God is God. God is no less in control than He was at the time when Jesus walked into that temple and cleared it out. He's God today. Thank God, He's God today. He loves mankind. He loved them enough for Jesus to die for them. Jesus walked His way on this cross, going toward that cross, just three days before, and He does the most important thing, and that is He continues to teach, and He clears the temple, and He heals those that are there in the compassion. He's wanting to heal hearts compassionately that need Him to break the power and the penalty of sin. That's our Jesus. That's proclaiming Him in our lives. Not just verbally, but our lives speaking loudly for who He is. Let's pray. Father God, what a day that must have been. And not much is said said about the disciples. They listened to the words that Jesus said to that fig tree, which literally was an analogy of the temple, an analogy of those religious leaders, that there was destruction coming. They had been given ample time. It was literally a completion of Luke chapter 13 and verse 6. They would have no doubt been at the temple and watching Jesus do what he did. They would have been held in awe, I'm sure, even though some of them would have experienced it at the beginning of his ministry. But to see the passion that God had, that Jesus had for God's temple, they must have caught that. They must have seen how important it was that really evil that Jesus was trying to stamp out, was not in the government, not in all of the social aspects and societal problems, but its root was the fact that the people of Israel were not worshiping God. Father, heal our land. May we return to you. May we get a sense of the importance of worshiping and praying to you, the Almighty God, Father, take us and use us. We're here because we're at just the right time for just the right reasons, and that's to serve you, journeying one step at a time. Every one of us has a different journey. You have directed our paths differently, all surrounding around you, but we will reach people that only we were designed to reach. And it's not us. We're just giving the message. We're gardeners, if you will. Father, give us that courage, the strength necessary in a time which is more important than ever. Thank you for your words. Thank you for the Holy Spirit guiding and directing us with the Word. Use them to make us even more like Christ. And lastly, is in His name. Amen.